intro. I, some of that backstory, I had no idea that any of that had ever happened. Uh, I guess the underlying message is that I missed my first calling and that I should go on to my third career, uh, return to my roots as a, as a programmer. Uh, I heard that Richard condensed an hour and a half worth of material into an hour. Uh, I once heard a professor being defined as someone who tells his students that he has a semester worth of material. And when he goes off campus, he condenses it down to a one-hour talk. Um, compared to Richard's challenge, I'm going to try to do that and uh, take that much bigger volume of material and reduce it. At the end of it, I'll give you a little bit of a pointer to where you can get more details. A uh, research blog that I started writing as of next week, three years ago, that'll have a bit of a deeper pass at some of the things. Uh, but essentially, we'll try to tackle to see if we're any more successful at getting it into an hour than Richard was. Um, but that's what we're going to be doing in terms of uh, pulling apart a bunch of the things that I do within my course, integrating it with research papers that I have published, integrating it with case studies. We'll go into a couple of mini cases. Uh, Richard's slot, to be fair to him, is known at the business school as the second worst teaching slot of the day. Anyone have any idea why that would be? Right before lunch, the empty stomach slot. You are the only thing between the student and lunch. And so a little bit of pressure that you have on you within that slot. Any guesses for what the worst <laughs> slot of the day is? The full stomach slot. And so that's what we have right now. Um, there's a reason why yesterday they filled this slot with 20 seconds per slide to try to keep you guys awake. Uh, we'll see if we can do even half as well as it sounds like it went yesterday at being able to do that. So we're going to head into talking about Rich versus King, some of the stuff that Joel foreshadowed. Uh, we're going to talk at three different levels. I'm going to be pulling in three different core focuses of mine in terms of the research and looking at the patterns and these early choices that founders face. We'll then take a look, once you have a founding team together, a bunch of the choices you face there, at what you have to do to augment it by bringing in hires, by bringing in employees and some of the trade-offs that you face there. And then finally, once you have all those things in place, sometimes before the hiring starts, but in general, a little bit after that, when you start introducing investors into the equation. And we're going to take a look at each of these steps at the trade-offs that you face Going right leads to certain implications. Going left leads to very different implications. And we'll talk about, as we go to the end, about pulling together all of those choices into an overall theme of how to think about when you are at those forks in the road, how you should think about the right and the, and the left sides. Okay, we're going to focus in particular on those forks. And we're going to focus on those forks where you have to trade something off, where this balance, one side of the seesaw goes up, but the other side goes down. And so where you're giving up something in order to go in the direction that you're going in. Okay, let's get a feel for how many of each of these types we have in the room. How many people would put themselves in the middle circle? We've founded something. OK. So some good first-hand knowledge that we'll hopefully be able to tap. How many people are in the hires realm? Not founders, but early hires into a venture. OK, a bunch. Any investors 
in the room? Okay, we'll beat up on you guys. Okay, the motivation for my research this is just stepping back. This is about the only academic citations that you'll see today on this slide. I'm going to give you just a couple of background slides before we dive into some of the, the core patterns that I've found. The motivation for this comes from a colleague of mine named Bill Salvin and some of the work he did about 20 years ago. Bill's an economist. He wanted to understand why do new ventures fail? And to go study that, he did a survey of VCs. He said to them, when, look at your portfolios, please. Take a look at the failures that have happened. Please tell me, did they fail because of, and then giving them a long list of reasons. Bill was surprised, and this is in a paper that he published in 1989, that the, by far, biggest reason why they said their ventures failed were the people side. People decisions, things having to do with the founders, things having to do with the founding team or the management team that comes in after the founders, the transitions between them, et cetera. This was the people side of why these ventures are failing. There are all the other reasons that are in some ways good reasons for them to fail. But here, this people side um, is what is pointed at as being the big reason why. And about four years ago, there was a replication study done that essentially said this is barely budged. This is still the preponderant reason why ventures fail. Not they missed the market, not they couldn't get the technology developed, et cetera, that it was all these things having to do with the people side of the equation. And so what that sparked for me is the question of can we get our arms around these squishy, these hard to understand people issues so that we can give founders some guidance about first, what choices are you making that have these big repercussions? What are the options you should be considering? What are the implications of each of them so that we can help you make the decisions around the people side and hopefully reduce, hopefully dramatically, but even a little bit of a change in the 65% number that we might be able to improve a whole bunch the success of our new ventures. So what I had to go out and do is go and get my own data. Uh, academics being human, uh, they go where the data is. It's easy to get data on public companies. And so they'd always studied public companies where founders, at the time of IPO, very few of them are still around. They, even the studies that had tried to look at founder issues hadn't been able to. Less than 10% of the founders in our data set, not statistically significant, any of the patterns, et cetera. And so here I had to go out. I started doing a survey in 2000 and go out and ask the heads of new ventures, of, of private companies, starting off particularly within the IT realm, Ask them to tell us all the things about founding, about the executive team, about their boards, about their financing histories so that we can get the data that we haven't been able to use to analyze these patterns and to understand the implications of these choices. And go out and get that data on all of these areas. And I'll talk about something at the way end about the big carrot that we use to have people be uh, motivated to fill out the survey. Essentially, we hand them a very scarce bit of data that's critical for them to be able to know what is market when I'm trying to hire someone. Retention implications of knowing compensation, equity stakes, et cetera. We take that part of the survey and package it into a pretty detailed report that only the participants in the survey get. And so here we're able to help the ventures not be flying blind into these hiring and compensation decisions while also being able to have the data to be able to study 
these issues and then feedback the results to everyone who's in a new venture about what we're finding are these patterns there. And that survey ended up getting a little more than 200 respondents there, decided because of that to make it into an annual survey. And so we've continued it up till now. In 2003, 2002, we added in a life sciences side to it. And by now, we're heading into the 10th year of the survey in 2009, have accumulated uh, close to 3,000 data points at the company level and more than over 10,000 at the executive's level, at the individual's level of data that I'm going to be showing to you in various phases throughout the talk now. And so as you see charts, as you see summary data, it's all coming from this, except for one slide that I'll show you at the end to complement it. But this is just to answer the question of where is the data and the charts coming from. Okay, choices building the team. Let's head into these forks in the road. And this is talking about building the founding team first. The light bulb has gone off. You have the idea for something out there in the market. You've had a bunch of talks about the finding the thing that customers are going to be willing to pay for and all of the other things that you should be looking at in terms of a good idea. Early fork in the road. What would this choice be? The person has had the idea. What might they be looking at here? Do it all yourself. Superman, I've got everything I need to tackle this. Okay, this is one choice that you have when you get that idea. Let me head down that fork in the road. The other side of it is what introduces most of the things we're going to talk about for the next handful of slides. You decide not to do it yourself, and that introduces three critical, at least three critical choices that you face. First of those, what do you think this is? Okay, who should be my partners? Okay, what kind of relationship should I have with them? Is it a good thing to found with family? Is it a good thing to found with, co with coworkers who you've worked with in the past? At the bottom there. Is it a good thing to found with strangers? Founding with friends, the best thing I could do or the worst thing I could do? And we'll take a look at some of the data around that choice that's introduced by heading down the path of I'm not going to do it alone. I'm not just going to go and be Superman myself. Next one, this is a little more cryptic. We've had the relationships. This is now the roles, the decision making that goes on. Are we going to do it? First at the bottom, I call this the Peter Pan syndrome in a lot of new ventures. This is, if you're familiar with Neverland, what was the rule about decision making in Neverland? We're all equals here. There are no parents. We all are deciding everything together. Very common way that early stage ventures are making decisions within the founding team. Very different splitting up of roles and decision making compared to the Mount Olympus approach to doing things. One person at the top of the mountain handing down the commands and the orders to everyone else. This is the roles and decision making part of it to complement the relationships part that we talked about first. And then finally, you've split up the roles and stuff. What's the other thing you have to split up once you decide to involve co-founders? Equity, splitting the pie. And so we'll take a look at some mini cases around this, what turns out to be a very oftentimes gut-wrenching negotiation that has to go on within the team. And we'll take a look at some of the 
examples of it and start to pull apart some best practices around that. But essentially, these are, once you head down the fork in the road of let me involve others, the relationships, the roles, and the rewards part, as referred to in my class, those are the three sides of what that fork in the road leads to. And those are some of the things that oftentimes founders go down one of the forks in the road without thinking about it. Of course, I'm going to found with this classmate that I just did this project to try to develop a system for class with. We're going to take it to the next step. We're going to become co-founders. Not thinking about the implications of, this is my best friend. Is that something that's a good thing for me to go ahead and do this with him? Same thing when it comes to, we're just going to default to how we're going to split up the roles. We're just going to default to how we're going to split up the rewards without thinking about it. And so three of the things that I've heard it referred to as the elephants in the room, that we get further and further down the road, we've never talked about them, and they're causing problems for us. Okay, founding with friends. Let's take a look at it. We're going to take each of the three R's and take a look at some data from that. We've got two lines on the graph. The higher up on the graph the line is, the more stable the founding team is. Which line do you think is the teams that are founding with friends? And which line do you think is the teams that are not founding with friends? Friends are red. Why is that? Why? You know each other really well. You trust each other. OK. OK. OK, so there, when business and social conflict, you're saying you're going to paper over the business because? So you'll make worse business decisions because of it, and that can cause problems for it. OK, up at the top. OK, so you, you pick the guy that you like to drink with. Does that mean that that's the guy that you want to be there 2 in the morning coding with? Is that going to be something very different when it comes to the social basis for your relationship versus the business things that you're going to go through? OK, go ahead. Okay, so a different dimension by which you're deciding to get involved with them. And if they happen to coincide, you're lucky and you might be in the best of all worlds. But here, the consistent theme that people are highlighting are the dangers of founding with friends. Uh, I don't have the pie chart here. I didn't bring it in. But on the pie chart of who you most often found with, friends is the biggest slice. It is the most common way that people go and decide who I'm going to be founding with. And yet, everyone is highlighting here the minuses of doing it. And in fact, the red line is the friends line. That team is less stable as the venture is evolving, a lot of times because of this. You're going in with a social relationship. A lot of times you might not even be, you might think you know each other really well. You might go and assume that we have all the business stuff all nailed down, all the role stuff nailed down because we know each other very well. But you know each other in a very different way. And you're assuming that it's going to work business-wise. Let's not tackle. Let's not discuss the relationships. And that's going to get in the way of your forming an effective team there. Some of the explanations for 
why the friends piece of this is the less stable on the team side. Okay, let's take a look at the equity splits piece of it, moving to the next of the pieces that that fork in the road introduces. Okay, what do we think is the most common way that you want to split the that people do split the equity with their co-founders? Even, equal split. Is that a good thing to do? No. Again, the most common way that people do it, and it's not a good way to go. Why not? Okay. So there, we think we're equal equity-wise. So that means that we're equal decision-making-wise. If there are two of us and it's one-one, how do we How do we make that decision happen? Okay. So there, it's linked to the decision-making part. This is where each of those three things is linked to each other. So how you're splitting the pie and the roles in decision making, possible linkages. What? Okay, so three, did you split equally? Okay, is that, so is everything hunky-dory because of that? Is it? Okay. <laughs> how long have you guys been at it? Okay, interesting. So. <laughs> Okay, and did you consciously say two isn't going to work, we have to go find a third as a tiebreaker, or, or was it just it happened to be three, you got lucky, you avoided the one, one? Okay, so there you're looking at what each of the players, the complementary pieces there. Okay, were you guys friends beforehand? Okay, interesting, so we'll have to talk a little bit afterwards. <laughs> We'll debrief with each of the three indiv individually, I guess. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, so there, if the contributions don't match the stakes, what is that going to, what is that going to cause for the team? Okay, who's going to be unhappy with that? <laughs> I guess we're turning into group therapy session here. <laughs> so you mean the most important members of the team? The biggest contributors are the most unhappy with that. Okay, interesting. How well can you tell when you're starting the venture who's going to be contributing what? Okay, so even if you think early on, even if you're pretty confident that we're going to be contributing, we're all going to be equally committed and everything, you might have still some surprises then. And so possibly five to six years out, you've kind of been able to see what that is. But early on, as you're starting things off, even if the best of intentions are there, even if you know each other very well and think you know how is each of them going to scale with the venture, what is our business model even going to be, and who is going to be playing what kind of a role in contributing to it, you might not be as well matching of that contribution to how much of a stake each of those people has. Okay, let's take a look at a couple of cases here, equal split. Again, the biggest slice on the pie of how much, how many of the ventures split it equally. 
Okay, we're going to take a look at two mini cases. First is going to be the Zipcar case, local Boston company of car sharing. That's the main business that it has. Uh, and the other side of it is Occam, which is a software company. Uh, let's take a look first at the Zipcar case. Two founders here. So we've already talked a little bit about some of the issues that that might introduce there. The, uh, one of the founders, Robin Chase, joins full time, becomes the heart and soul of the company, crafts all the partnerships with car makers and with parking lots and universities to get their cars into the lots. She throws herself completely into the company. Her co-founder, by the way, an acquaintance going into it, more they knew each other socially, their kids were in daycare together, doesn't join the company full time, contributes from the sidelines, when they split the equity, we shook across the table 50-50. And I thought, great, this is from when Robin came to our classroom to talk about the split, the implications of it, et cetera. Okay, so Robin is flying high at this point. The very heady early stages of building the venture. We're coming together as a team. We've gotten through this tough negotiation about the split. We're off and running. Okay, how do we think Robin felt as their co-founder is not contributing as she is throwing everything into the company. How happy do we think Robin was? Not very happy. Not just that, that first handshake caused a huge amount of angst for a year and a half. It was eating her up about how different the contributions were to how much each of them owned. They owned the same amount a year and a half later, even though very different levels of dedication, of commitment, of contribution to the venture. The Occam case suggests some ways that we might be able to avoid that. I'm not going to go as deeply into this, but two ways that Occam differed. There, first, their relationship that they had beforehand was as co-workers. The person who took the founder CEO title had been the boss of one of the other guys. They already had a lot of that business relationship worked out. The hierarchy was clear. They had been able to work through business issues in the past, and so they were able to handle a negotiation over an equity split. There, they decided we're not going to be contributing equally. Jim has 10 years more of experience than Ken does. Jim should get more. Jim was also contributing more of the capital, more of the seed funding for us. He should get more of it because of that. So there, to begin with, the first difference is trying to match our anticipated contributions to the different equity stakes that we're going to have here. The biggest issue, though, that they faced was that the third co-founder, who had actually been the idea person, it didn't look like he was going to join full time. He had just had his first child. He had a very nice job that he was very happy with, with KPMG. Essentially, he was deciding not to come on board. There was a chance he might, but as of when they were starting, they weren't going to have him on board full time. So what they did was they created a founder's agreement that was a dynamic agreement. This was something, if we go back to, I guess, freshman year at Penn, this was just a one page of if-then-else statements. If this happens, then this is what the equity split will be a year from now. If the other co-founder is half-time, if he is full-time, if each of us is playing this kind of a role, agreeing to that upfront 
and having the, the equity split adjust to who is making what contributions. And so there are a few things in the Occam agreement that we can improve on, but overall, a very different monster that we're dealing with as a team if, over time, contributions is going to be pretty closely matching to the equity stake. And so there's a couple of very different ways to think about the split, to think about more of a dynamic side. There are other ways to do this with having the team impose vesting on itself. A bunch of the ins and outs about how that is a more dynamic way to go rather than everyone being vested from the beginning. Other things that have to do with having adjustments as we can't anticipate things, as we hone the business model, as we can tell who's going to scale, as we know who's going to be committed full-time to each of, the each of the roles that they're in. So this begs also some of the questions that my current research is looking at, the implications for team stability, are teams that split equally versus unequally more stable than other ones? For the venture as a whole, which is a healthier way for this very early choice that they are making to affect the path of the venture? If the team is blowing apart, is that a good thing for the venture? So therefore, if equity split affects the team blowing apart, let's think more about that early choice because there's going to be big implications down the road for us. Okay? Taking a look at some of the drivers of splitting equally, teams are more likely to split equally, going back to what we were talking about a little earlier, when things have barely even evolved. We are just starting right now. We are still honing the business model. We are still trying to figure out who is going to be doing what. All of these early things, when they're very ill-defined, that's when teams default more often to the easy handshake, to the Zipcar approach to splitting it. When they do it later on, as things have become more defined, as we've learned about each other and our levels of commitment, that's where it's more likely that they're going to split it unequally. Okay, but the asterisks are just statistical significance. So these are the ones that stuck out as being strongly significant within the, the analyses. The more different the team is in terms of the prior experience, the more heterogeneous the, uh, the prior experience they have, the more likely they are to split it unequally. This is teams trying to match the contributions, the person who's been out there 10 years versus the person who has just finished college. There's going to be very different profiles of who's going to be contributing what. And so there, the teams that have the more, the more different that is, the more likely that they're going to be splitting it unequally. Okay, let's shift gears now to the hires stage. Let's take a look at beyond the founders. One of those trade-offs, any guesses for what this hiring trade-off is? Jack of all trades, top right corner there, can play any instrument for you. Just tell me what song it is, and I can contribute to it in some form. Versus, the bottom left, the specialist, the world-class ace at being able to do what they do there. When might you want to go for one or the other? Okay, so a smaller team should go with more of the jack of all trades. Okay. Any other thoughts? Go ahead. Okay, so which how would that how would this weigh into that? Which way does that go? Okay, 
Who's going to be person by person? Who's going to be more expensive? The specialist or the jack of all trades? Specialists often much more expensive than the, the jack of all trades could be a very sharp young person, cheaper junior person, not someone who's been in the same arena for a long time developing that specialty. And so there might be some financial considerations there. And so possibly team size, how many are you doing? What about how well you know what your business is? Say you go to that person down at the bottom right, I bet down the bottom left, and you say to that person, hey, we thought we were a classical orchestra, but turns out we're a marching band. Is that person going to be able to contribute to the team then? Is that person going to be able to adapt to that? Or are you going to have some gut-wrenching firings that you're going to be going through there? Versus you go when it's more uncertain with the jack-of-all-trades who's going to be able to morph with you, might not be able to contribute at the same high level in a specialty, but some of the flexibility that you have to it. And so there, how certain your business is, and this also has implications for where in the life of the venture should you start hiring specialists early on? Should you go a little bit more with the jack of all trades as you're feeling your way through things, as you're adapting? And then at certain points, you might be able to take some functions within the company and develop it being around more specialists. You might be able to have things be formalized earlier. You might be able to bring in a different type of person there. And so some of the things in terms of those trade-offs, uh, that's just one of the trade-offs in terms of a bunch of the hires. Do you want to hire Mr. Wright, who's going to be able to be with you throughout, or Mr. Wright now? This is the person who, bring him in for this point. He's not going to be able to scale with us. We're going to have to hire someone over him. We're going to have this very early loyal employee, very very dissatisfied with the fact that he didn't get that promotion up to there, that he's got someone managing him. A whole bunch of the other issues involved in the, over time, how is the team going to be changing? And a bunch of things around where you're going to look for the people, the big company person, small company. Uh, I'm actually about to put up a blog post around the challenges of big company people. Uh, and there, to the extent that you can weigh some of those trade-offs of each of them has, have pluses, but not be susceptible to the minuses of each side, that's where a bunch of these trade-offs can have major implications when it's looking at employee number four, employee number five, and that is what you're building your company on that foundation. Uh, a couple of other things about where you're going to find your people. Looking at the team level, do you want a dream team? Do you want the all-stars who have never played together? Or do you want the national team that's played for a decade together? And so they are thinking about it both at the individual level up, up at the top and also at the team level and some of the more systemic implications of how you're going to build your teams. Okay, now that we've gone through the hires part, let's move on to the investors piece of it. Fork in the road. You're thinking you might want to go out and get some resources. What's this side of it? Bootstrapping. Self-funded. Be able to do whatever your current resources or anticipated resources without bringing outside stuff into the equation. Okay? The other side of it, you're deciding not to bootstrap. What is this decision? What? Smart money, dumb money. Okay, so who you want to go with and some of the trade-offs that are involved in what am I going to have to give up to get that smart money? How can I even tell if it is smart money 
or if they just talk a good game on their website about the, the value add that they will be bringing to their companies and everything. And so they're a key piece of that trade-off of who you would be bringing in in terms of those resources. What's some of this implication here? Board. This is where some of the major decision-making goes on at the high level. And early on, it's just you and your co-founders, you're the board. You bring in a bunch of that outside money, you no longer are the board. You might not even have more than half of the board. And so some of those implications that those introduce. <laughs> then the final bottom line one sometimes about what's going to happen to this founder if the board becomes unhappy with them and wants to replace them. That's what we're going to take a look at now in terms of a short case study. It's a company called Wiley Technology. Lou Cerny, the founder, CEO, and chairman of the board, builds a 50-person company, very successful at leading product development. He had been working for close to a decade at Apple and Hummingbird, accumulating a bunch of experiences that to him looked like the right things to be putting in his portfolio for when he was going to be making the leap. He goes out and starts succeeding in terms of the financials, starting to have the revenues going on up. The losses, he's dug them out of the cash trough, has those headed upwards on the profitability side. Cash flow positive is within reach. He's able to raise money from two top venture capitals, venture capitalists. He's able to raise from Greylock and from Excel. All sorts of things that say to Lou, you're doing great. Keep this up. You are succeeding. What do we think that Lou's reward was for his job as CEO? I want you to step down as CEO within six months. The clock is ticking, Lou. Why would that be? Okay, so you're saying looking forward, forgetting what you're doing right now, Lou. You've been a smashing success, but if we're looking at what the next stage of development is going to be of the company, you are not the right person to do it. Okay, what do we think goes through Lou's mind when he hears that message? Okay. I couldn't quite put that verbatim in the case, but oh, let's back up here. Okay, where have I messed up? We took a different part of the quote from him. What have I been doing so wrong? There, his success makes it even tougher for him to grapple with this forward-looking message that this investor is giving him. And so there, his own success is causing even more of a gut-wrenching transition when this bored person that he's brought in is telling him, Lou, you're no longer the person to be running this. Okay, This is going, we're going to come back to the case in a minute, but let's go to some data on founder-CEO succession. This is from a paper that I did back in 2003 using the first of the, uh, of the survey data sets from 2000. Lou's company was just around here in terms of how old it was. About 50% of founder CEOs are in the same boat as Lou. Being faced with this message of, we have to change you. 
You are no longer the right parent for your baby. And we want to decide who the next parent is going to be. Remember that red line over there. We're going to come back to that at the way end when we're pulling some of these things together. Okay. Looking also at the other patterns within that data on a little bit more than 200 ventures, when we take a look at the things that Lou had done, the things we had on that first slide, product development had been completed. He had succeeded at getting to that point. He had succeeded at raising financing from professional investors. He had raised some big rounds there. Things that new ventures throw parties to celebrate. Things that we go out of our way to say, this puts the stamp of success on us. This sets us up for success in the next stage. Let's celebrate it. What are they actually celebrating? Which direction do we think the chance that Lou is going to get fired goes in? The rate of succession goes up. When we are holding that party, we're actually celebrating the demise of our fearless leader, or at least a higher chance that that is going to happen. Okay, and then some other things, there are things that decrease it in terms of what the equity stakes look like, what that profile looks like. But in general, those are the key pieces of the things we celebrate actually have a major black lining to them. Okay, so back to the case. Lou is starting to grapple with it. He asks, well, am I going to still be in the company? Or, uh, what is it going to look like now for me? They hand him this org chart. Up here, placeholder for the next CEO. Lou's looking, looking, and looking, <laughs> trying to find where he is. Finally notices, I'm out over here, chief technology officer. Sounds pretty good to me. What do we think of this? Should Lou be happy with moving to CTO? Still part of the senior management team, still a chief. Ah, so let's take that away and see. He had been at the top of this 50-person organization. He doesn't have a single person reporting to him. Chief of who? This is the sidelining of the founder. Lou sees this as, I'm going to be symbolic CTO at best. This is where they're shoving me to the side, trying to weigh the benefits and costs of keeping me around. And so there, Lou's trying to grapple with this next stage of it. Well, at least I'm chairman of the board still. Well, I'll still be together with all the people I hired. I can make sure the culture is going to be maintained. I can still be playing a role in the technical direction of the company. Does Lou have any choice here? No. Lou is just a taker of this? Okay. Doesn't that solve the problem for the board? We don't have unhappy Lou still around? Isn't that a plus for them? If here their sidelining doesn't work, worst case scenario is Lou is gone. That would sound pretty good from a board member perspective. OK, well, let me give you a little bit more data on this along those lines. The dark boxes there, those are all the people Lou hired. Deeply loyal to him. The family culture that he built, this is the fearless leader to them. He hired all but one of the technical team and every senior manager across here. 
And so Lou realizes that if I'm unhappy with this transition, it's going to be a systemic problem. This is going to cause major problems for the company if this isn't something that goes on smoothly. He has some reasons to make sure it goes on smoothly, but also he sees it as a bit of a lever. And he ends up using that lever to get a little bit more bargaining power in this than we might think. So first he's getting over his shock. Lou likes to think in terms of metaphors. And so for him, it's the world's best speedboat captain. That was me. We're heading to being an oil tanker. We now need a different person who's going to be captaining the ship. And so let's bring in someone who will be a better captain. However, let me make sure that I can have say over this. Leveraging his influence over the rest of the team, his loyalists, into I get final say over who this person is going to be. I can veto someone if I think that they are going to be the worst choice for this next parent for my baby. So we get to the six-month point. Six months becomes nine months. They're looking at candidate after candidate. Lou hasn't liked any of them. <laughs> Six months becomes nine months, becomes 12 months. And we still don't have a new captain for the oil tanker. 12 months becomes 13 months. So 12 months becomes 13 months, and they find someone that Lou can agree to and that the board likes. They've found their knight in shining armor to come on board. They're about to sign him on. Oh, by the way, I have two last demands. Oh, a little bit more compensation for me, please. Rather than making two and a half times what Lou did as CEO, I want to make three times what Lou does. Final demand. Lou, you're no longer chairman. So not quite the firing Lou part, but the next stage in the evolution to it. That last thing you were grasping at, Lou, of I'm not gone from my baby, you're going to be giving that up. Oftentimes, a bad euphemism, but this is called founder redeployment. How come redeployment always goes downwards in the organization, not upwards? There, the continual downward trend, stepping down to CTO oftentimes, then the next step, head of engineering, the next step, out of here. Gradual redeployment downwards, and then exit from what had been their baby, the thing that they had birthed and worked so hard on early on. Okay, let's take a look at some of these patterns that we've taken a look at within the case and then hopping back and forth within the data to pull it together before we move on. We're going to be plotting here. Go ahead. Yeah, Lou is still pretty invested in the company. Um, or, let me correct that, he would have been pretty invested in the company if the new CEO hadn't led them to a major exit. And so there, Lou giving up control led to, and this is where we'll get back into a little bit the rich versus king trade-offs there, Lou giving up the throne to someone else led to Lou being, this was actually a bit of a challenge for me when we were first teaching this case in the business school. Uh, 
when we wrote the case, Lou was filled with some of this angst that we talk about with Robin Chase with Zipcar. He had not yet found his new role at all within Wiley. He was still grappling with what is my relationship to my baby, other things along those lines. And so we were able to capture that in writing in the case. But two months before we taught it, they got bought by computer associates for almost $400 million. And so we have Lou sitting there in class, just like Robin Chase had come to class. Lou came to class when we're doing this. And he's just sitting there with this big smile on his face. <laughs> the happiest guy in the room. Lou, what about that angst? Lou, what about our conveying to our students what you went through and what it was like? And so it was a bit of a challenge for us. But essentially there, that is where he faced that fork in the road and could have decided, let's not bring that person in. Lou would not have led them to that big of an exit, if any exit at all. Because he gave up the throne, very much sidelined, not even Prince of the Island anymore, he was able to make off with it. was interesting. I had two VCs from Greylock who came. Uh, the chairman of Greylock was actually my co-author on the case, a guy named Henry McCants. And five minutes before class, I get a ring from my secretary asking, what classroom are you in? And it turns out that a guy named Bill Hellman from Greylock wanted to come watch the case. And so I have these two guys walk into the room. And I realized afterwards that this is probably wrong, but it might capture it a little bit, that Lou was probably the richest guy in the room <laughs> compared to these VCs here with this big exit that he had just had, with this sale having happened. And that is the last person that I'm going to want to be putting up there to capture the angst part of it. <laughs> and so there, it's. You know, the, the retrospective perspective that Lou would have on it, very different from what he was going through as he was experiencing this during that transition. Okay, so company performance. Company's performing pretty badly down here at this end. What do you think is going to be the chance that that founder is going to be replaced as CEO? Okay, so over there it's going to start high. And this actually matches large companies when the CEO does badly chances of they're getting fired. What's going to happen as we head over to the end here? Companies performing really well. Okay, So there, the chance of that person being fired as CEO goes up. To get to that level of success often meant go out and get that capital that Lou went out and got. Leading the company through the end of product development really quickly and successfully. The ultimate of success is on the operating milestone side. That hastens the need for new skills. We've finished developing the product where you were the best one to lead that, Lou. Now, what do you know about building a sales team? What do you know about finance as you're having to track a much more complex organization? What do you know about managing multiple functions that you're having to build out and flesh out? Succeeding at that operating milestone hastens the need for new skills. And so that's why we have this very different pattern in a large public company. A CEO succeeds smashingly. There's no way that person's going to be dislodged. It's going to be totally their option about when to move on. Very different for our founders. In the paper that I did on this, I referred to before, quote a founder who talks about, captures it pretty well, if the company tanks, I'm gone. But if it's a smash, I'm also gone. And the title of this paper I captured as The Paradox of Entrepreneurial Success. That if you fail, you're gone. 
but your success, you're gone. And this founder was grappling with, should I be aiming, perverse incentives here, should I be aiming for just a little bit of success so I'm in the middle of this graph? Because it's very important to me to have the company succeed, but also for me to continue to be the parent of it. And so some perverse incentives that this introduces for those founders. A VC captured this as, one of the toughest jobs I have is firing CEOs who have succeeded in rapidly growing their companies, going back to where we started out with Lou. When they've, when they've been a failure, it's really easy to explain to them the need for change. When they've been a success, that's going to be a really tough conversation to have compared to the failure case. Okay, where do these founders go to? This is some of the current research I'm doing right now. Um, almost everything else that I've covered so far on the data side, I've already put up on my research blog. That's up there. This I don't have yet because this is emerging research. Um, and so you're getting a preview of what will be opened to the world sometime in the next few months. Founders leaving immediately, the biggest bar on this chart. And then where do they go to if they're staying within the executive team? CTO. And then you also have down at the VP level, so going down a couple of rungs on the ladder. And this is where founders go to. There's a big influence on this. Go ahead. This is after they've been replaced, whether it's VCs there or not. So this is combining the two of those. And there, there's a big impact, though, and this is what I've been just crunching the numbers on, of who initiated this change. Some of these founders might see the writing on the wall or might realize I'm in over my head. And so they go ahead and initiate it, start the ball rolling on it. And there's actually a big impact on their staying around and in what type of position compared to if the board does. And so first, the, does the board initiate this change or does the founder CEO initiate it? If the board initiates it, far more likely that the founder is going to leave immediately. If the board initiates it, far more likely that the founder is going to take a much lower down role in the organization compared to just moving down one step. Also implications at the board level for whether the founder is going to be kept around on the board and whether the founder is going to be able to remain as chairman if they already were chairman. And so some interesting dynamics that that introduces of if you see the writing on the wall, if you can lift your head up from the day-to-day -day tasks and start seeing some of the signals that the VCs might be sending, do you want to move that day up a little sooner to get more control over it? Or do you want to hold on a little bit longer and then possibly be in the board initiating category that we have here? Okay, this is where Lou, going back to what the, the end result was, Lou ended up on the left side here, our beloved chairman, the smaller statue here, and all the glory to the CEO who was brought in, ran them for a year or two, led them to the promised land. Okay, so we've looked at founder choices now at three different levels, going back to the bullseye chart that we had. So here first within co-founders, we looked at a bunch of the forks in the road that you face once you decide to bring in co-founders with you. The hiring issues, the investor issues once you're starting to bring them in. And we start fleshing out, putting these in a chart of all of these different types of decisions that you could make. We have things here about going and getting co-founders, getting the best of them by offering them a big stake, going and getting the best non-founders, giving them senior decision-making positions, 
getting the top investors. How do we categorize these choices here in this column? What are you accomplishing when you go in this direction? Okay, so you're building a bigger pie, you're building something more valuable because you're getting the right people and the, the right resources to be able to grow the venture to close to its fullest potential. Okay, what about if we shift over to this column? What are you accomplishing with this set of choices if you head to the other fork? Okay, keeping control. And so here, these very different forks that we've been looking at all have implications for are you going to be able to remain king of this venture, keep control of it. If you consistently make choices on the right side of this chart, you will maximize the chances that you will be able to stay on the throne. However, it'll be at the cost, potentially, of building the best venture that you can, growing the most value. The flip side of it, if you go and try to build the biggest value, you get the best people on board, you give up the biggest stakes to them, you take the terms from that smart money, then there's a much bigger chance that you're going to have to give up control. And so that's where each of these forks in the road has implications for that. And so the core challenge is, am I going to be able to get the key resources without having to give up control and that balancing act that you have between the two of them? And so if we take it here and take a look at this trade-off between the financial gains, am I going to have much lower than I could have had or pretty close to the full financial potential that I can walk away with? Am I going to keep control, continue to be a big player in the organization, or have to be sidelined like Lou ended up having to be? This is where we have those trade-offs between being rich versus king. Is one right and the other one wrong? This is something I've done some toes in the water by studying our students. I don't know if you would say that they're representative of the world or not. Um, and they're actually found very balanced between that. I will show more systematic data on uh, two slides from now on a much broader set of people. Um, and it suggests that it's very high up on a lot of people's motivations there. Okay, what do we say about right or wrong? Go ahead. Okay, so there you might be more in sync with who you're hiring, what they're motivated by. And so there might be a disconnect if you're going to try to remain king and all these other people who are coming on board have a very different thing that's making them tick. Okay, what about within the founding team? What about if one of the founders is one and not the other? What if you have a disconnect there? Some way some of that ultimate team blowing up dynamics that you might have if there's very different things that are making them tick. Okay, other thoughts? Go ahead. Okay. What about if what motivated you to do this is to birth a baby and grow it and remain the parent for its life, and yet you make decisions that are all in the rich column? Okay.
Okay, so there it depends on what are your motivations, what's making you tick, what motivated you to do this very tough thing to begin with, of trying to start something from scratch, of making this leap into entrepreneurship. And so there, having that be in sync. The ultimate question. Um, in the course that I'm developing right now, the last module of it is going to be four cases looking at rich and king founders to take a look at what separated them from the 16 that we will be looking at earlier on in the course. Um, and this is right now one of the things research-wise that keep watching the research blog as I have things that roll off the presses. I have an initial set of what are some of the patterns that are starting to differentiate them. Um, one of the key ones is, are you a first-time entrepreneur or not? The strongest effect that I'm getting so far is first-timer versus every time after that. That first-timer understands themselves a lot better and what makes them tick. Lou is making some very different choices now in his second venture because he understood the ramifications of those choices. He understood what his motivations are right now. He is going far more into the king direction. Because some of it is that he now has the ability to self-fund. And so that's something that also comes with being a second timer and onwards. But he's understanding himself a lot better. And he also understands the CEO job a lot better. What is it going forward there? And so the early results are that that is the biggest, most significant effect that I'm finding of the people who are diving into the pool for the first time, the people who are walking into the dark room without knowing where the chairs are that they're going to be bumping into, the people who don't know what they're in for and also don't understand themselves as well. And Lou, having gone through each of these forks, knows himself a lot better and knows what are those forks along the way. And so that's the biggest effect that I've been seeing. The last case that I'm going to have within that module is a serial founding team that along the way converged on being able to have Rich and King, but early on in their ventures, because of all of these first-timer problems that they had, they were having to trade things off. And then finally, over time, those experienced entrepreneurs are able to gain the knowledge, gain the self-knowledge, gain some of the resources to have the option to bootstrap and things like that. And then they have a lot better of a shot of getting into that bottom category. But watch, watch the blog as things roll off the presses or the new cases as they come out. Okay. So here, let's just given that we have uh, about a minute on Richard time, um, Let's just take a look at a, pulling together a couple of these things. So as we were just talking about, are you making the decisions consistent with your motivations? And so some of the core questions, this is just some of the, uh, there's an article that I did in Harvard Business Review that captures a bunch of the trade-offs, at least within the investor piece of it. And there, the woman wanting to remain queen, if you will, um, and the, the man reaching for the golden eggs. This is interesting to the extent that there is a person at the business school I'm collaborating with now on research who has collected data on thousands of people and what are their motivations. This is that slide I referred to earlier. And here, when I break out the data looking at the entrepreneurs versus the non-entrepreneurs, very different lists here. But what do you notice? Let's focus first on this. What is motivating these people? How would you capture that top four list? King and rich. So essentially in their top four, there are various metrics of king and then rich. And so there, if we're taking a look across that broader population, those are, and there, this is a list of about, this is a list of more than a dozen items that are there. 
And so there, those people are grappling with these very high motivations that I have. How am I having to trade off one for the other? Do we think that men or women are going to have tougher rich versus king trade-offs based on this? Men are going to have tougher. Why? Here, rich versus king, very high on both lists. Women, financial gain much further down. And so HBR didn't mean it when they had that graphic about the woman with the crown on her head. But at least across this sample that, that Tim Butler was collecting, looks like they'll have much easier ways to grapple with these competing motivations that they have, because one of them is further down on their list. One thing to notice, first, uh, in terms of the question, these are pretty stable across the decades of people's lives. The one big difference is that women catch on to altruism being important a lot sooner than men. The big thing that men change over time, when you look at the 40 to 49 data, altruism comes out of nowhere and is suddenly on their list. Something that women figured out two decades beforehand. Okay, and so that's those differences in terms of those motivators. Okay, so now let's just go back to that red line that we had earlier about the founder giving up control. Okay, if we go back and revisit that and take a look at each of these forks, the, the light bulb has gone off for you. And now you're facing, who do I found with? You go on to be Superman versus you go out and go get the best of your co-founders. You go out and you decide on the financial side, I'm going to continue bootstrapping versus I'm going to take the outside money. You then go on hire-wise, I'm going to go with the cheaper jack-of-all-trades versus the more expensive specialist that I'm going to have to give up some decision-making to, give up more of the money to, need to go out and get more capital because of it. And so recurringly, as you go through these forks, this is what leads a lot of those founders down that chart. Having to give up control as they're making each of these choices along the rich versus king spectrum. And a lot of times, the end result is that the person who's made the top choices there still own all of the pie, but it's become a much smaller pie. And it's potentially that the person who owns just a piece of the pie has a bigger financial reward because they've given up the throne, because they made all of these earlier decisions. Okay, key questions for the founder. If you must play, decide on three things at the start, the rules of the game, the stakes, and the quitting time. Here, why am I doing this? What are my motivations? Oftentimes, you don't understand those motivations until you hit that fork in the road where you have to give up something and you're trying to decide which of the ways am I going to go. On the other side of it, what early choices are going to cause problems? We looked at a bunch of those forks in the road in terms of those early choices. And at the intersection of them, which are consistent with my motivations? As I mentioned, I have the research blog that's out there. You can either go directly to it or you can just do a search for my name and blog. I would love to have you guys continue the dialogue that we started here today, the questions and the insights and everything. Let's take that online. And if you see things in there that your experiences show where I am wrong about some of my posts, where there's some much richer things that are going on that you can shed some light on, I would love to have you guys participate in that dialogue there. The other side of it is I mentioned the compensation report where all this data is coming from. If any of you want to participate in that, we usually do it in the spring. You can go to the compstudy.com site to be able to participate in there and then be able to get a pretty rich bunch of data on 
salary, bonus, equity stakes, based on how many rounds you raise, based on how big the company is, based on the geography, based on all of these different slices of it, so that you can understand what is market for the people I'm trying to hire. Is my board underpaying me? Do I have an equity stake that is at market? It also gives you median, mean, 25th, 75th percentiles, et cetera. And so to arm you with a bunch of that data that just participating in the survey would be able to get for you. So enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Thanks for making me the opening act for the afternoon. And thank you. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay. Yeah, I'm Neil. I'll introduce you. Okay. Um, a lot of people uh, talk about building ecosystems and creating communities, but there are very few people who actually manage to do it successfully. And our next speaker uh, is someone who, who is involved in doing that day to day. So Mike Malinkovich is the, uh, the executive director of the Eclipse Foundation. He runs EclipseCon, uh, an enormously successful conference 